Poso maoni work, wai wainan kitana ni mua e yoski piataya posnotaman e yum MITW podcast. A yospis piataya posnapi notaman and e hisikimaka e yoso matnamineho kihi. Welcome to the Menominee Indian Tribe of Wisconsin podcast. The MITW podcast is where you can get the latest information from the Menominee Tribe and our tribal departments with your hosts, uh, Douglas Cox, Menominee Tribal Chairman, Sheena Wapus, and Gary Dodge. On this episode, we'll be covering the recent legislation passed by the Menominee Tribal Legislature that has amended MITW Code Chapter 307, Industrial Hemp, and updates on the Invasive Species Code, MITW Chapter 310. We will also be hearing from the Menominee Language and Culture Commission, Menominee Nation News, Manasakia, Menominee Tribal School, Environmental Services, the Menominee Tribal Police Department, and Conservation. So, Chairman, can you tell us what the Industrial Hemp Code is about? Well, sure. <clears throat> so the Industrial Hemp Code broadly uh, covers activities for anyone growing hemp within the Menominee Reservation. Um, this has been over the past few years a pretty big uh, topic, not just for us here at Menominee, but statewide, nationwide. Hemp is gaining a lot of attention in way of natural products, um, healthy initiatives in medicines, and it's gotten attention mainly for that. So for us, um, we have a code that regulates that. And that's what we'll talk about. Okay. So um, how will it affect the community, the Menominee Tribal community? So so the, the current hemp code should have a positive effect on a community. So I will tell you a little bit about what we did with the amendment that passed last Thursday. So the tribal legislature passed this amendment. So the tribal legislature adopted Chapter 307, legalizing and regulating the cultivation of industrial hemp in 2015. Chapter, three, chapter 307 currently only allows the tribe or a tribal entity, such as a chartered business, to obtain a license to cultivate industrial hemp. At the time that Chapter 307 was enacted in 2015, the state of Wisconsin and the fed, federal government generally did not distinguish between industrial hemp or those cannabis um, grows that included cannabis with low THC levels and marijuana under the criminal statutes. So there was no distinction between growing industrial hemp and growing cannabis or marijuana. So since the enactment of Chapter 307, there have been two significant changes in the law regarding industrial hemp. Number one, the state of Wisconsin enacted a pilot program under the 2014 Farm Bill, which made the cultivation of industrial hemp legal under both state and federal law. So if done pursuant to a license issued by the state, we're able to do that, uh, individual travel members. Secondly, in 2018, the Farm Bill effectively legalized industrial hemp at the federal level. So as long as it's cultivated in accordance with approved state or tribal hemp plan, 
our individual tribal members are able to grow hemp today. So the two changes in law have reduced much of the uncertainty regarding the legality of industrial hemp production. You know, tribal members who have received or intend to receive industrial hemp license from Wisconsin Department of Ag Consumer Protection, or the company known as or the agency known as DATCAP in Wisconsin, they're the entity that issues the Wisconsin license. So if that happens, you know, you, you have expressed a wish to cultivate industrial hemp on a reservation, really you're good to go. We do know that there is one individual at least um, doing that today under that legal process. There could be others. We, we don't know yet. So this amendment is meant to be a temporary provision until such a time that the tribe has an approved hemp plan in place. So we have to write that hemp plan for the tribe to adopt some of these processes that currently the state and the feds have authority over. So until we write that tribal hemp plan, our tribal members that are interested in undertaking these activities still have to go get that state license. There's a few reservations over that, obviously, because you know we're not subject to state jurisdiction. So that, that that's one thing. But again, the the farm bill, the federal farm bill, is what's really authorized us to be able to do this. Um, and again benefit to the tribal members is they can now garden and grow industrial hemp on a reservation under under a license. So what are the next steps going forward with that hemp plan for the tribe? Yeah, the, the next step will be that, you know, that um, the authorities in the tribe will have to develop that hemp plan. Um, it'll be led by likely the Department of Agriculture, the Menominee Department of Agriculture. So they'll They'll start working on the provisions of that. The hemp plan isn't just a plan to say, what are we going to do? The hemp plan will have to include these provisions that are required for the tribe to take on a program to, to allow hemp to be grown without the state licensing procedures. So we'll need a process for licensure. We'll need a process for regulatory. We'll need a process to monitor and actually test those hemp um, productivities ourselves. So we'll have to be able to test whether that hemp is within the uh, legal bounds of, of production for, for legal hemp. So all of that will be part of that plan. Okay. So say if, um, if like a um, licensed grower manages it poorly, what are the consequences? The biggest, the biggest issue that would come currently as part of a violation, I guess, if you will, with, with growing hemp will be that specific level of hemp. Is it hemp or is it marijuana? And that, that's measured by the content of the plant itself. The seeds are what drive that. So, you know, production of seeds from, from legal, legal hemp grows, if you acquire those in the proper channels and you're properly cultivating and, and managing your your hemp crop, you shouldn't have those those issues shouldn't occur. So that that would be the biggest issue with uh with the legal bounds of, of growing hemp. 
A lot of other problems, technically, I'm certain can occur. I'm, I'm not an expert in, in the farming portions of hemp, but, you know, that, just like any other egg crop, has to be managed properly. And, you know, if, if we as tribal members take that on and you're putting the expense into your crop, and, and, and if you plan to industrialize some of this and you're going to do it for profit, um, you'll want to make sure you're you're managing it for, for the best possible outcome at the end of the growing season. So. Okay. And again, I guess some of the uh, the other things that that are occurring with the federal farm bill parts of it that I should mention. So we're still operating under the 2014 farm bill provisions of the process that allows us to grow hemp. If it wasn't for the state and the feds enacting the the new provisions that they did that allows individuals to get permits now under what they changed. Even under the 2014 Farm Bill, we still wouldn't be able to grow hemp. So without those changes that were made by the state and the feds, that's what's allowed us to do this. So why did I say 2018 Farm Bill? That Farm Bill passed <clears throat> essentially legalizing hemp production, industrial so the 2018 Farm Bill allows us now to do that, allows anybody to do it. The reason we can't go under the 2018 Farm Bill parts of this is because they haven't written the rules yet. So the specific details about what are the regulations of the 2018 Farm Bill that allows us all to, to now industrialize and, and, and grow hemp as an egg product for profit until those are written, we won't have a good handle on how are we all going to move forward in, in prof profitably managing hemp, you know, as a crop. Okay, so this is all still in, like, in progress? A, a good portion of it is still in progress with the exception of, of what, what we've done. And, and again, the tribe's ability to manage it ourselves once 2018 rules are written, our tribal hemp plan comes into place, the, the code um, is solid. So the tribal code, Chapter 307, is another piece of that requirement that then allows the tribe to, to do this on our own. So individuals, the tribe as, as an entity, um, will be able to, to grow and produce hemp Okay, so will that include like uh, non-tribal members also? Uh, we we haven't um, discounted that, so it depends on how those lease requests would come, and what the land issues would be with it, on how we could proceed within the boundaries of the reservation, on permitting individuals to to grow hemp, tribal or non-tribal. This code is, is the jurisdiction of the tribe, so whoever is under our jurisdiction and, and wants to apply for for regulatory pieces, including permits under our jurisdiction, would likely be eligible to do that. Again, it would depend on land status. Let's hear from a few of our tribal departments. We'll be right back with information on invasive species. This is Menominee Nation News. I'm Chris. And I'm Patrick. 
It was a busy month of June for the tribe. The month started with Menominee Indian High School student-athlete Darius Waka coming in third at state track and field when he threw a discus for a distance of 51 feet and 2.25 inches. On Friday, June 7, seven young students from the Menominee Tribal Daycare's language immersion class walked to the Menominee Language and Culture Building for a hands-on lesson in earth science, healthy eating, and Menominee language. Lizette Bailey, MLCC Administrative Assistant, said the effort is part of the overall language revitalization effort. Community Development held a construction informational meeting about upcoming projects, including improvements to Highway 4755 between Dodge Road and Community Highway VV West, a new entrance to the mall complex in Kashina, and several other projects in Neopit and Middle Village. Patricia Roberts, the longtime food distribution director, was honored at a ceremony for her many years of service on Friday, June 7th. Roberts, her family, friends, and co-workers were joined by tribal leaders as they renamed the food distribution building the Patricia R. Roberts Food Distribution Center. The S. Verna Fowler Library started its summer reading program, and in honor of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, many of the craft and reading activities have taken on an outer space theme, ranging from rockets and flying saucers to planets and stars. Several participants are now busily trying to fill out Constellation-themed reading logs in order to win entries into grand prize drawings that are taking place at the CMN Culture Building on August 13th. The Menominee Tribal Agriculture Department recently marked the one-year anniversary since the establishment of the department. Since then, the department has been involved in maple syrup business, agroforestry projects, and several community garden initiatives. The Menominee Agricultural Department has since become an integral part of the Menominee Wellness Initiative. The first Menominee Youth Culture Camp of the summer took place the last week of June. Among other things, participating kids learned about traditional Menominee stories, engaged in traditional arts and games, and heard from a wide variety of guest speakers ranging from Menominee language speakers to members of the Menominee Tribal Police Department. The camp ended on June 28th with traditional games of lacrosse and shinny that were also designed to serve as community healing events. On Thursday, June 21st, the Menominee Tribal Legislature approved an amendment to Chapter 307, legalizing and regulating the cultivation of industrial hemp. The amendment now allows tribal members who have obtained a state license to cultivate industrial hemp on the reservation under tribal law. People can also read about summer teaching lodges taking place at Miniconicum every Thursday night, summer school activities at Kashina Primary School and Menominee Tribal School, several summer basketball camps, some recent efforts at promoting gardening and other forms of food sovereignty, and how the Menominee Indian Badger Baseball Association team, the Menominee Indians, has been kept going on the Menominee Reservation. New issues of Menominee Nation News are available every other Monday. Our next issue will be available Monday, July 8th. The following issue will be available Monday, July 22nd, with a deadline of Wednesday, July 10th. You can also receive updates by subscribing to our e-newsletter. Text the word Menominee to 22828 to get started. For more information on advertising and subscriptions, or to share a story idea, 
call Menominee Nation News at 715-799-5167. For Menominee Nation News, I'm Patrick. And I'm Chris. Hello, my name is Gary Frechette. I am the chairman of the Menominee Conservation Commission and recently um, the chairman of the MTL-MCC Lead Free Initiative Task Force. Okay, so um, when did the uh, lead free ammunition and lead free fishing initiative start? It all started back in the fall of 2016. We received an email from the Conservation Department Director Walter Cox. He forwarded an email from uh, Marge Gibson. She's the one who runs the Raptor Education Group up in Anigo. And they're the ones that um, treat eagles for lead poisoning or any birds that matter. So she sent Walt the email um, in wanting to educate the people on the reservation about the lead poisoning to bald eagles. Um, going forward, you know, we, we sent emails back and forth. We finally got her to present to us in May of 2017. She came to the M uh, MCC commission and gave the first presentation about lead poisoning in bald eagles in her group. And that's what started started off. Um, everyone who was at attendance um, was kind of touched by the presentation. And from that day forward, I think um, the lead-free ammo has been on our um, agenda. So it's been a long time, but the commission's been starting s since um, like May 2017. Okay. Uh, can you explain what the initiative is about? Um, the initiative is about taking lead out of the hunter's um, ammo and fishing tackle. It the, the effects that it has on, on eagles and loons and swan and trumpeter swans. Um, so it's about taking the lead out, uh, using lead free for mainly. I mean, it initially started for the hunting. Um, we, we were geared to taking the lead out of the, the hunting ammunition. But once we started the task force, um, some suggestions came across. Well, if you can do it for hunting, then let's do it for the fishing tackle, for the lead sinkers. Because the lead sinkers are the ones that affect, like, your loons and your trumpeter swans. Okay, and then for, you know, some people that may not know, how can that affect wildlife and, like, how can they be exposed to it? So, f so for hunting for bald eagles, it's it's when they scavenge on the carcasses for deer, um, and lead bullets um, are poisonous. They they do affect the birds, they affect their nervous system, they affect their organs, and they'll. Um, if you listen to Marge when she presents, um, you can tell uh, eagle that's kind of affected by lead poisoning because their back feathers are usually white. They'll be green. And the uh, eagles are very docile, like you will see them on like low branches or on the ground and barely moving. So, and how they get that is from the lead bullets. They they fragment up the uh, research from the Raptor Center and uh, University of Minnesota. You know, fragments can go from 18 inches from the initial wound. So when the eagles feed on those carcasses, they ingest it and they get poison. Okay, so um. What are some like uh, health risks for for both eagles and like wildlife? Um, for eagles, it, it's just they, they can't get rid of it. You know, once they eat it, 
it's stored even I think for humans too it's stored in your bones and um, the only way they can get it for the eagles what the raptors do they there's a therapy they use to get the lead out of the blood mm-hmm. but that costs them a lot of money but it's um, if, if the eagles don't have that um, remedy they, they, their life after that is, is not great and usually it, it's mortality you know they don't they don't live from lead poisoning they don't they won't live long okay and then you also um spoke about like exposure to humans um what's the health risks for humans uh for humans the, the major risks are for the um children and pregnant women um for children you know it affects their kidneys their nervous system um decreased bone and muscle growth um behavior problems um hearing loss, learning disabilities. Um, for women that are pregnant, the exposure can cause you know, premature births, stillbirth, miscarriages. Has there been any cases on the reservation for lead exposure to wildlife? Yes. So the raptor Rigi in Nanigal usually takes about 25 bald eagles a year for lead poisoning, um, and about two to three come from the reservation. So the reservation itself, we have about 12. The latest from the state of Wisconsin is we got about 12 nests up here. And we get about, in Rigi, um, receives about two to three eagles from us for lead poisoning. How much does a box of lead-free ammo cost compared to the lead-based ammo? Um, it, so a couple of years ago, that would have been probably a, a big price difference, but they're beginning to cost down. So right now I did a... Analysis on the Cabela's in Green Bay. So the f- I use Federal, um, the company Federal for that. And for lead ammo, for a 270 lead ammo, it's $22, $23 a box. And for the non-lead, it's $29 a box. So they, they come down a lot, a $6 difference between the lead and non-lead. Is there a potential for a... Um Lead-based like ammo, well, and fishing too, uh, ban on the Menominee Reservation. Yeah, so the task force has been speaking. Um, we meet once a month, um, and we are planning on the spring of 2020 to have in place a lead ban on hunting ammo and fishing tackle. Um, this year, up to the end of the year, we'll be doing more lot, trying to do more education with the public. Um, our kickoff was the community meetings, um, we did have brochures out there. And one thing we are going to try to do is have more um, stands at, like, the powwows um, in the future community um, meetings in, like, this podcast. Okay. And then, um, so if, like, uh, well, we'll w- basically will conservation wardens be uh, checking, like, all of the hunters or just in certain circumstances? Well, today, we, waterfall, duck hunters, um, there's a regulation today that they can't use lead. And it's actually, I think, countrywide. But um, so the wardens are probably, I can't speak for how they would enforce that regulation, but it would probably be how they enforce the duck hunters today, which is just spot checking. You know, you just go to the, you know, how they spot check duck hunters. They'll probably spot check deer hunters, bear hunters, you know, to make sure they're, you're using, you know, lead-free ammo. 
what will the consequences be if a hunter is found using lead-based ammo in the future? Um, so the task force is probably going to start with the waterfall, looking at what the consequences today is for people who use um, lead ammo, and that would be our basis. And today that's a, um, in, in the ordinance lingo, it's called a Class E forfeiture. It's, it's a fine between $10 to $100. So that would be the base of where we would start when looking at what we would want the forfeiture, or, you know, the fines to be. And depending from input from the public and from the task force and the commission itself, you know, they'll decide what that final um, fine will be. If people had questions, how can they um, contact you? So the commission meets once a month. Um, the MTL, MCC Lead Free Initiative Task Force meets once a month. So we do have regular uh, monthly meetings. Um, we do have brochures that, I, like I sent you, we're going to try to get that on the tribe site. Um, right now we do have, a, it does have the presentation from um, Regi on there in, in a PDF format but we'll probably put our copper brochure that we kind of based off the Raptor Center from University of Minnesota and put that brochure out there. Um, but if you want to contact us, you can contact the Conservation Department or you can contact um, the commission. My email is gforshet71 at gmail.com if you have any concerns. My name is Darla Dick, and I am the Treatment Center Administrator for Manasakia Wellness Center. Uh, Manasakia has been in operations for over 30 years and was originally created to serve as a resource for the community and providing services that encourage a healthy family lifestyle. Um, we serve to bring respect and preserve tribal values, instilling hope for the future, and hopefully thereby eliminating violence, ending alcohol and drug-related problems, and other issues related to that. So it's been, like I said, in operations for over 30 years, and um, we still follow a lot of the core values and the mission and vision that was created years ago. We are one of only two culturally centered programs in the in the state of Wisconsin, so we do have a lot of uh, resources and a lot of different programming that fits well with Native American communities. So we don't only serve our own community, we serve other tribal communities as well. Uh, some of the services that we provide include alcohol and other drug abuse assessments. We provide individual and group therapy for AODA, um, alcohol and drug abuse issues. Um, we also provide some intensive outpatient and residential programming and aftercare for both of those as well. Can you uh, explain a little bit about how someone can get in to get help? Sure. So we have um, a couple different avenues that people can take. One, they can just reach out over the phone, make contact with our offices. This is one area that we've kind of tweaked over the last year because we had our staff, our counseling staff, ready to answer questions and um, handle a lot of those intake calls. But we've, we've had a huge increase in calls and inquiries and then on the spot individuals showing up at the agency. So we've been responding to those as well. And that's an area that we knew we needed to improve this last year because we were handling so many individuals that we weren't always able to have somebody answering the phone um, 
and that's something we knew was important and we needed to change. So we've actually added three new positions, and those are our peer support workers, and they will be helping us in handling a lot of those intake calls. They've experienced what it's like to take those first steps. So um, they're really excited. We have uh, two starting already, and we are hiring one more, but they're really excited to take those first steps. Again, they, they've been through that process, so knowing how to um, reassure them that they're going to be in good hands or at least being a positive person that they can talk to and connect with a program, even if it isn't ours, that works for them. So we also added evening and weekend um, intake personnel, and we have an intake center so that we can help individuals on uh, nights and weekends, and then we have on-call personnel. We've partnered with the Tribal Police Department, and they are going to be reaching out to us as well if um, they have any individuals that show up at the police department um, needing help or services and really working with multiple programs so that we can respond immediately um, to those things. That's one thing we prioritized over the last few years. So, um, Other than that, we also provide mental health services to our client base. So oftentimes we have individuals who may be struggling with some substance um, use and there's some mental health that's coupled with that. So we really increased those services at the at the department. Uh, we have two individuals now who can provide mental health services, and we have a psychiatrist that um, we can get them connected to as well. So that was um, primarily we were, you know, AODA, so um, alcohol and substance use assessments, and we've added in that mental health because it's important, and, and we've really supported a lot of our residents to be able to do dual diagnosis and dual treatment while they're in the program as well. That sounds awesome. Yeah, there, we've, we've heard nothing but positive feedback, and I think we were able to provide more of a holistic approach to treatment. Um, so that's been going really well. Uh, trying to think... The other thing we've recently changed is our primary day treatment. So that's our intensive um, outpatient group that meets four times a week. Um, we had some requests from individuals. You know, the, the time frame we had was during business hours. So that didn't always work for people with jobs and trying to, you know, maintain their career and, and also getting the help that they need. So they had requested to have um, some evening groups. So we started that June 1st. Um, or the first week of June is our first launch of evening sessions for primary day. So they're now offered from um, 5 in the evening until I believe it's 7.30. So just evening groups for them to be able to maintain their day job and still get the services they need. Yeah, it seems like that would make it a lot easier for people. Yeah, and, and we do have individuals who... Um, they have different hours, so some do work in the evening. So we've talked about like running it in the evening for a short time frame and then switching it back to um, and hopefully growing, you know, in the years to come and be able to offer groups at both times. Um, so that's our our goal is to continue to add to our um, workforce to be able to meet all the needs um, and to be able to sustain those programs over time. And the last program... Um, that we have is our batter's intervention. So we're able to provide uh, batter's intervention groups um, weekly for male and female. And then we also provide assessments and um, maintain those. That's that's an area that's been pretty consistent with our program. 
Um, recently, we experienced some turnover, so we're working really hard to maintain that programming and then refill those positions. Can you um, just kind of explain like what batters is? Sure. So that is um, any form of domestic violence, so partner to partner violence or any contact with you know police or law enforcement, and it can entail. Um, emotional, physical abuse. So what we do is we offer a 24-week program to work with those individuals that have been referred through either the court system, self-referral, or um, another program within the tribe. And through 24 weeks, they process um, through healthy behaviors, healthy relationships, and really looking at, you know, what behaviors are um, happening in the relationship and what aren't um, so healthy and and changing those to be more healthy and and, um, giving them tools and techniques to utilize in real day life and moving forward um, from those incidences. So we've had really good success with the program. Um, But like I said, we've we've had some turnover and uh, we're working to fill them right now. So but we're still maintaining we have staff that can cover those areas until we're able to fill them. My name is Mary Knope. I'm the newly hired food service manager and head cook at Menominee Tribal School. The Menominee Tribal School is accredited through the North Central Association Commission on Accreditation and School Improvement. Our vision, the Menominee Tribal School guides students and families to nurture lifelong learning, driven by Menominee language and culture, to embrace their responsibility to themselves, their communities, and the Menominee Nation. Our mission, the Menominee Tribal School, is a family, community-based, K-8 Bureau of Indian Education school. The school integrates academics with Menominee language and culture through the teachings of the seven grandfathers to promote academic and behavioral success. The Menominee Tribal School is proud to provide a traditional family atmosphere. For school year 2019 to 2020, in addition to serving students in kindergarten to eighth grade, we will be offering a 4K program. All families can enroll in our 4K program through the Kashina Head Start Center. The Menominee Tribal School offers small classroom sizes which is ideal for student growth and academic achievement. We are proud of our overall inclusion of Menominee language and culture into our everyday curriculum using the place-based approach to learning. All students participate in Menominee language and culture classes. Traditional practices are instilled by emphasizing respect, behavior, performing traditional rituals, and making everyday decisions based on the seven grandfather teachings. The seven grandfather teachings are wisdom, love, respect, bravery, honesty, humility, and truth. The Menominee Tribal School programming includes the Bear Trails After School program featuring tutoring, hoop dancing, regalia making, science, art, and math club. Menominee Tribal School athletic programming includes cross-country, flag football, tackle football, volleyball, basketball, baseball, golf, and trek. Our next topic is um, 
invasive species. Yeah, so so <clears throat> chapter 310 of the Menominee Tribe of Wisconsin Code um, is titled Invasive Species Prevention and Forest Health Protection. Um, fairly new code, so you know it was it was adopted last year. The purpose of the code uh, of this chapter, as it's known, is to prevent the introduction and help control invasive species and diseases on our lands within the exterior boundaries of the reservation. So two pieces really. There's a forest health piece and there's a a tribal lands piece and, and invasive species are much broader than just the couple pieces we're covering under this. The plan for this ordinance is to grow it out a little better and, and make sure we start to cover some of those other species that are that are threatening our lands. For now, this one is really intended to cover the pieces that are threatening our forest. Okay. So the the first one there um, is related to emerald ash borer, and it's commonly known as EAB. Um, that particular insect. Um, is an invasive and it's threatening our ash um, stands within the reservation. Um, it's not here yet. Uh, it's, it is in surrounding counties, so, so it is a threat to us. Last year, or two years ago, the state of Wisconsin did what they called a statewide quarantine. So before that, they had individual counties quarantined where if if it, Emerald ash borer was in your county, the, the state would quarantine that county. So let's say Marinette County was quarantined. You wouldn't, you'd be prevented from moving wood from that county to any other county unless you met specific provisions on how you could move wood from counties that were quarantined to counties that weren't quarantined. So it was protecting us counties that were not quarantined. What the state of Wisconsin did was they decided to quarantine every county. Their reasoning for doing that was EAB was spreading at a rate. Their impression was that every county is going to have it soon. Instead of trying to piecemeal and regulate all these little dots that aren't regulated counties and mix them in, if we just quarantine statewide, then wood could move from county to county without these restrictions which is all fine and good for the state's management. What they forgot to do was recognize that Menominee is, is not just a county, we're, we're a reservation. Mm -hmm. And we have our own laws and, and, of course, our own sovereign ability to manage. So at the time we found out, I contacted Wisconsin Department of Agriculture and informed them that we felt like they didn't consult with us before they made this decision. Because what, as I said, what it essentially now allowed to happen would be that statewide quarantine means when and if it ever comes to, let's just use Shawano because they're next door. Shawano County gets EAB. Every county is restricted. Folks from Shawano that are moving wood could move wood onto the Menominee Reservation without restriction. And the state would claim that they've, they're regulating that. So we told the state that in our next step in order to officially communicate with the state that, that we would say, hey, we're not 
um, a quarantine county yet. And we don't agree that wood should move freely from county to county without the tribe's say in this. This was our answer. So the provision that most um, speaks to it is that that um, that section on prohibited acts and penalties on emerald ash borer. So it's 310-3 Part B. So for this purpose, it says emerald ash borer. To prevent the spread of emerald ash borer, it shall be illegal to transport any firewood or unmilled log onto the lands within the reservation boundaries of the Menominee Indian Reservation for use or storage on the reservation. Firewood in unmilled logs includes all woods processed or unprocessed, all woods intended for use in campfire or in woodcrafting. So the law enforcement officer may seize and dispose of the firewood or unmilled logs processed in violation of this section. Violation of this section shall upon conviction result in forfeiture of not less than 50 or no more than 500 per violation and confiscation and destruction of the cut wood or unmilled logs. So that's one part of this ordinance, but again, it's the biggest part because that's the reason the state did what they did two years ago on the quarantine. That's our response. We provided this to the state and said, this is the tribe's regulation on firewood movement. We don't have EAB here. We don't plan on having EAB here, even though a lot of the experts say it's an inevitable thing. Um, the tribe doesn't agree. You know, we're going to protect our resources to, to our ability, and that ability is our authority. So that's how we responded. So the state now list Menominee as a as a um, a quarantined uh, a non quarantined county. It's an excluded county in in their in their mind. So states have this authority to do that. Other states have done that, like California. So they've they've taken on themselves the ability to take action to say we're not accepting this this merchandise within within our state, and they've done things like this in other states. So it's not unusual to, to states to have this kind of legislation in place, and th that's why we've done it. So, so <clears throat> the other portion of this um, that I see involves oak wilt. Can you talk about that a little bit? So we've, we've always had a struggle with the oak wilt part, and by struggle I mean tribal members cutting on tribal land, um, always cut without regulation. Not, not because there's no tribal regulation, but because the county had their own restrictions. So if you're out in the Legend Lake area, you would see signs that would say, cutting oak during these periods of time is prohibited, and, and that's why, because oak wilt prevention. So tribal members... If you weren't on county lands, we really didn't have any restrictions on what we could or couldn't cut, when we could or couldn't cut for oak. So to try to shore that up, we put that in place. So we put oak wilt section in there to prevent the spread of this disease. 
it shall be illegal to cut any standing oak tree still containing the bark and living species of oak tree or any tree in designated oak wilt control areas on a Menominee Indian Reservation between April 1 and August 1st of any given year, unless prior written permission after an inspection is given by the Menominee Conservation Department or the Environmental Services Department. Violations of this section shall result in not less than 50, not more than 500 per violation and confiscation of the wood. So you can see there, so anytime between April 1 and August 1st on tribal land, there's now a restriction from cutting any oak unless it's dead, dead in, dead in bark off essentially. And we kind of mimicked what, what forestry does as well because tribal law applies to everybody. Menominee tribal law provides to, uh, applies to MTE. So, you know, do we want to make a law for cutting oak that would bound MTE or prevent them from their normal operations? No, we wouldn't want to do that. So we looked at what is that date that we're using because it historically that date used to be way out in the fall. So October 1, all the people that cut firewood, the guys um, that were most familiar with it would always go, hey, the Legend Lake prohibition's October 1, so that means we can't cut before October 1. Loosely adhered to it, as I said, research has been done um, and, and mostly MTE is kind of led following up, following that research. So MTE in their own cutting prescriptions now on our forest are allowing loggers to cut some of the oak as early um, as August 1st. So, so not October 1st anymore. They're starting to be able to harvest oak that early. And it's in their cutting prescriptions. So when we implemented our code, that that's why we put that that date in there. Oh. And you could just kind of explain what these um, invasive species do to the forest. Yeah, and, it, and definitely the the emerald ash borer. You know, not that oak wilt isn't important, but emerald ash borer probably top of the list when it comes to forest health diseases right now. Um, that, that are threatening our forest. We have another one that's on the forest that isn't in here, as I explained, but it's a understory plant. It's garlic mustard. That one's here. We're fighting that one hard now. But as far as the threat goes and, and this code, emerald ash borer is uh, really devastating because it, if it gets in your forest, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill all of your ash trees. There's no, it doesn't spare any. Um, it gets in, it spreads fairly rapidly. There's a way to do some prevention, but prevention's really expensive. Um, there's an insecticide you can inject into trees that that they won't then they won't harm them. But again, you, that's one tree, you know. So for yard trees and, and urban trees in the communities, that that's maybe a an option we can explore. Otherwise, our forest, you know, out there in our managed forest, we have volumes of ash. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge volume on our forest. That's the first threat that people look at. Well, it's going to affect our forestry operations. The part that people have forgotten about, and especially 
when it comes to forest management. Because again, foresters think about logging. They think about wood to the mill. They think about boards. What we forget about ash and this threat here is our culture. So our black ash culture is big in surrounding tribes as well. And other tribes are doing things about education and prevention on, on basket making. Um, and we're, we're doing, we're starting to do that a little better, but that's a, that's a huge threat. And then that's one that we're trying to follow. And, and again, it, it has a lot to do with this code as well. Doing this piece doesn't just address that bigger forest part. It addresses our culture and, and that ash basket making piece that, that there's a good group of people here working diligently on making sure we keep that part of our culture. It's just like our language and our songs and our legends. Anything else that we do that that are being threatened to be lost because of modern times, just our history. You know, not not because of threats like this, but things like that are being threatened all the time. Um, to add something like this adds to that threat of losing that forever. So, so besides the garlic mustard, mm-hmm. what are the other ways that you're looking at growing this code? Uh, the, the, there's a portion of land pests that, that, are, that need to be addressed. So, you know, you could go down the list and name all of the things, but we'd be here all day. So to try to to try to regulate other plants um, that, are, that are really threatening and put them in here for a couple of reasons. One, to prevent spread, and two, for awareness, to make people aware that, hey, these plants are out there, and, and, they're, and they're threatening our, our, our landscape and, and, again, our culture. Um, but as well, some of them are, some of them are harmful. You know, there's some of them that are, that are harmful to people as well, wild parsnip. Um, you know, if you come in contact with that plant, it can cause severe skin burn, and that's here. You know, and we're battling that plant. On the aquatic side, and on the wet, the water, the lakes, the wetlands, there's a couple that we have here that are also very threatening. Eurasian milfoil and um, curly-leaf pondweed, zebra mussels. Um, so th- those ones are in a couple of our lakes. Legend Lake has them. And, and again, we're, we're fighting those. So those are ones we want to prevent, we want to control. Some of them are harder to control than others on the aquatic end just because they, they're hard to control. So um, doesn't mean we shouldn't regulate them. Zebra mussels, again, a good example. They're in Legend Lake. They're in Meshaquit Lake. So if our tribal members are fishing in the, those lakes, they load their boat up and go up to the northern lakes on a reservation where those species don't exist. Your your opportunity to spread those invasives are really high. And uh, to be able to regulate it through an ordinance like this and put some provisions in there that say if you're not checking your boat before you move it, you're subject to penalty. <clears throat> those are things that we'll probably likely have in here as we go forward. But again, not just because we want to penalize people or regulate people, it's because we want them to be aware that that's what happens when, when these kinds of species get a hold and, and that's how they impact our tribal resources. So that's why.
coming up, we have some information about community events. But for now, let's hear from a few of our tribal departments. Poso Meep, and the SVC and Mark Lyons. Poso Mauniwiak, Nemani Nitan Skuniak, Aspikit Natakam, Mishik Watsapakoso Ana, and that Kayan. Note Nad Dennis Greeno Awe, Linda Greeno Awe. Name it took Watnawe, Mishik Kispiso Makake Awewak. Suicet Kasel Suck, Monaco T. Nakase Wap and Okitaman, Omat Namane, Waitnessin, Wawanan, Katana Namua, and its case, Notawiak. Poso Mauni Wiak, Lizzie Piwasit, and it asks we see in Mishik, Wawasmoqua, Mamache Tao, Nuiswan. Note na, Myron Piwasit Awe, Nikia, Doris Piwasit Awe, Mishik. Watna Satnawainen and Itskiwakian. All right, we are the third group of immersion teachers being trained for the last nine months. Um, we just finished our certification training. We are going to be starting um, shadowing as immersion teachers in our daycare in Kashina. So we'll be shadowing for two months. And then we'll be going to CMN, College of the Nominee Nation, and um, earning our certification in CDA, Child Development Associate. And then <laughs> starting in November, we'll be full-time immersion teachers in our daycare, teaching the young Nietzscheanic. So, very excited. Aspic it. Uh <laughs> Talk case of safety in case in you know, Kim Onako 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 case in you know, Kim the case a copy in it sim watna puchike the case the case pomohnem and this Michi Soe comic Michi Soe comic Police when Michoacan, Takaria. Whiskey what took? A catch waken. In the case, Pomotnim and its Kiwakian. In the case, a pain in this Tutupikane. In the case, Wapum Netflix. Satan and Adam. In the case, Napalm in this. Matata Tpaikan, isn't it? Last night after work, I drove a far way to Green Bay. Um, when I got to Green Bay, I was hungry, so I walked to Michoacan Takaria restaurant, and the food was really good. And after that, I walked home, and I sat in my chair, and I watched Netflix. It was a documentary called Satan and Adam was really good after that i went to bed around 10 o'clock that was it no can i host it uh lizzie anako case ni anokim case a peanuts him in all noakium chipakim in this uh a panic nipop mishik 
Wapham. Um, TV. Um, Nawena. Um, Nakes. Uh, Ashio Manes the Kuche. Uh, Peanut. Peanut. Okeo Kyochni Nawakium. Stowe in a palm. Sakao. Sakao to Pahikon. Sapa. Koskosim. Ines. Nikatusata to Pahikon. Mushik. Nakes. Osetum. Ines. Nakes. Osetum. Ines. Sakat peanutsim. Ines. Sachikawa comic. Uh, in a skisitna. So, yeah, Namak Gopim, Kakikitim, in a Mauni Wilk. So, last night after work, I went home to Zor to my house and I cooked potato soup um, and then I watched some TV. And then after that, later on, I was outside cleaning up my yard. And then I came back in and went to bed about 9 o'clock. And then this morning, I got up and got ready for work and came to the office in Kashina. Poso Mauniwiak, Shana Nawiswan. Kesini Anokim, Onako, Nikes. Saka peanutsim away, noakium, in this neopit, mishik, chapakum, wainat minoma, kesini, nina mishik, nani mosau, saka peanutsim away, sawano, mishik, tapaham, amasena hikan, in this atawewakamek, Walmart. Kesini Atawewa Kamek, Ishiam Ines Michi Sova Kamek, McDonald's, Nikes Michi Sim Paka Aquan Nuggets, Mishik Opanyak, French fries, and Kesini Michi Sova Kamek, Nina Saka Peanuts, Ines Niwopit. Mishik Nikes Wapam GOT and Stawe Napam Sakao Tapahikan in it. So last night after work, I went home and cooked dirty rice. <laughs> and after that, I went to Shauno to pay a bill at Walmart. And after that, I went to McDonald's and I ate chicken nuggets and fries. And I went home and I watched um, GOT, Game of Thrones, and I went to bed about 9 o'clock. In it, Wawanan. Hi, my name is Heather Piatsquid. I am with the Environmental Services Department. I am the tribe's water resource specialist, and I have been working for the tribe for 20 years. I started as... Um, temporary. I was full-time but temporary for about a year and a half and then was hired on full-time and I started out as a technician and I am now the water resource specialist. One of the many things that we do over at Environmental Services and one of the many things that I kind of lead a project on are our 
invasive species. And um, we have two technicians that work on invasive species eradication control throughout the year, mostly during the summer. So as we come into our summer months and our warmer growing season, there's a, a few things that we are always looking for. Um, we have aquatic invasive species, and we also have terrestrial invasive species. One of the big aquatic invasives is Eurasian water milfoil. We're fortunate at this time that Eurasian water milfoil is only in Legend Lake and Meshaquit Lake, and we do surveys every year through other tribal lakes to make sure that there is no uh, Eurasian water milfoil spreading to other tribal lakes. We also have zebra mussels in both Legend Lake and Meshaquit Lake, and we also have curly leaf pondweed. These are all aquatic. They grow only in water, and what they do is, like any invasive species, they grow really fast, and they, they tend to push out native plants and create a monoculture. And um, while they, they give lots of cover to fish, they are they really choke out a lot of native plants and it's good to have a great diversity and our lakes up here are wonderful with plant diversity so we really work on keeping control of Eurasian water milfoil in our the two lakes that we have it in and so you've probably seen people out and that we've gone up to legislature and talked about Eurasian water milfoil and and how to treat so we usually treat spring of the year and that helps with because native plants usually aren't up right away so we're fortunate we only have a couple species of aquatic invasive species and we are really keeping an eye on them and hoping that they don't transfer a great way for everybody to help stop the spread is by cleaning off your boat motors, making sure your boat motors are clean when you pull out of the lake, making sure that every last little bit of weed or any debris is pulled off and, and dumped garbage. And the same with if you have a live well, any water, drain all water, and really making sure your boat is clean. Um, those weeds and, and little bits of plants can get stuck easily underneath on your trailer. So it's really important that you look your boat over, look your trailer over. And when you go to another lake, really making sure because that's how it spreads. One little piece of Eurasian water milfoil can start a whole new colony in another lake. People have been great about it. There's people out at the landings making sure that people are hearing about this of keeping your boats clean and we kind of call it stop the spread and and um, it's, a, it's a great thing to think about during the summer as we're in and out of our boats having fun on our wonderful lakes. We also have terrestrial invasive species and we work closely with MTE and the Menominee County to help control, eradicate maintain what species we had and we've had our two technicians have been out this spring working on garlic mustard. Garlic mustard is a bigger concern here on the reservation and it likes to spread same thing like the aquatics. They become into a monoculture and um, it just takes over and so there's many ways to treat it. Some are with a, an herbicide and some we do hand pulling to and throw away so before it blooms we um, it, you know pull the seed pull the plant 
Um, so they've they've been out working hard on garlic mustard, and we've kind of hit all that, and we're working on spotted knapweed is another invasive. There's Japanese knotweed. We have buckthorn, which are trees. They start small, and they become these big trees. Um, Phragmites and wild parsnip is another invasive species that we do have on the reservation. And one thing with wild parsnip is that um, if it contacts your skin, it um, can give you burns. So people's skin are sensitive to it. So it's really a species of concern. We don't have it in a lot of places. It usually likes to be in ditches. Um, so we have people always looking for that wild parsnip to make sure that it gets treated or Wild parsnip's one that we actually can just eradicate the whole plant by pulling it out. Um, like I said, we have we have two technicians that are working every day at Sunny Out, which has been a little rough this spring slash summer since it's a little rainy. But they've been out working, looking for invasives, and um, trying to control them the best possible way here on the reservation. So, Heather, what would you say is the main point that you would like people to know about invasive species? Um, one is if you're out on the lake, please keep stop the spread, clean your boat off, drain all the water, dry your boat out. And the other is if you think you have something in your, your yard, please give us a call at 799-6154. And we'll direct you. We'll come take a look and we'll help will help you. Honeysuckle's a, a great yard ornamental plant and it's actually an invasive species and so we'll come out take a look. Give us a call. Let us know if you see something. We're glad to come out and um, just always be conscious of what's out there. Here with us today we have Anthony Staffield from the Menominee Tribal Police Department and he's going to be giving us some tips to remember in the summer weather. So on average, 38 children die in the United States every year from hot cars, and those statistics are pulled since 1998. Um, also in that same time frame, 619 children have died in vehicles from heat stroke in the U.S. More than 70% of heat stroke deaths occurred in children younger than the age of two. More than half of heat stroke deaths occurred by a caregiver to get in to take the child out of the car. Roughly 30% of heat strokes occurred because the child got into a car without the caregiver known and couldn't get out of the car after they locked it in. Usually you see that with like babies and infants um, that are able to crawl around. Nearly 20% of all deaths occurred because a caregiver intentionally left the child in the car. Uh, car's heat can quickly rise uh, 20 degrees in about 10 minutes. Um, even in cooler days, 60s degree temperatures, your car can raise over 110 degrees um, in a short period of time. And that's where you'll see a lot of kids as well as animals. I know these are put more toward children, but Animals being left in vehicles is another big one. Um, there's a few other statistics here about people leaving in there. The biggest thing is just to remember when you put it in there, um, you put any baby, anything in, anything in your car that's alive, you need to make sure that you pull it out of the vehicle. Um, they got apps and stuff like that that can remind you. It's sad that we've had to get to that point where we need our phones to remind us that there's a child in the car, but there are apps and things that you can do that. Always check your back seat when you get out. Even if you don't routinely take your child with you or any child with you, you should just always get in the habit if you have children in your life. Check the back seat just to make sure that there's nobody back there and there's no animals or anything back there. Probably one of the biggest questions uh, we'll get, especially in the summertime when it comes to both our animals and people, is that 
Um, you know, what can I do to get the baby out? The first thing you have to do is call 911 as soon as you see that, um, especially if it's a hot day, don't call the non-emergency line. Call 911 um, so to make sure you're connected right away with somebody that they can send an officer. Um, the legalities of being able to break a window or things like that um, really depends on the circumstances. You know, first call 911. If you can, try to get an estimation of how far away the officer is and ask the dispatcher if you can get permission to break a window. If it's a life or death situation, you know, where you're looking at the baby in the back and you can tell, like, you don't have very much time at all, then you could potentially break the window without any legal action. There's always a civil side of that where you could potentially be sued for it. Um, but as far as the law enforcement side of it, you would be protected, provided that you had to save the baby from intimate danger. What is the fines for, like, leaving babies or kids in cars? That's all going to depend on each particular call. It could range anywhere from a ticket all the way up to you going to jail for it, um, depending on the damage if you broke the window and you weren't supposed to, you know, you got your fines there for property damage. If you left the baby in there intentionally where you knew the baby was in there and you ran into the store, that could be a char uh, child neglect because you intentionally left the baby in the car. Even if you thought, hey, I'm just going to run into Hillstop real quick. Um, like we said, the, the the time frame it takes for a car to heat up is very short. Um, and if officer sees that, you're definitely going to face charges. People will call it in. We encourage people to call it in. Um, accidents happen. We know that. That's why we say call 911. You know, we've seen s incidents where... Um, you know, mom gets out of the car, locks the door, accidentally locks the keys inside the door, reaches to the back door to get the baby out, and now the car's locked. And in a case like that, it's very important to let us know that the keys are inside the car so that we can, you know, go lights and sirens and get there as quick as we can. So you could face anything from a ticket all the way up to jail time for child neglect, kind of depending on each situation and how it works. So do you have any other upcoming events that you'd like to tell the community about? Yep, we have our National Night Out, which is where we um, bring out law enforcement, firefighters, EMS, things like that. And we kind of bring them out as like a first responders night to interact with the community. It'll be on August 6th between 6 and 8 p.m. up in Neopit. Um, Candace from Crime Victims is usually the one that runs that, so you'll probably see some posts coming out about that um, as well. Most years we try to bring in a helicopter from Theta Star, one of the other medevac helicopters that we have. Uh, we let people tour the police cars and the fire trucks, things like that. There's usually food offered, some games to be played. Um, this year, I know they're trying to get uh, one of the officers to volunteer to be tased. So good luck with that. Um, but I know we've had volunteers that said they wanted to get tased. So there's a good chance there will be a tasing taking place uh, from a volunteer, whether it's law enforcement or somebody else. All right. Well, thank you for coming and speaking with us. Today. Yep. Um, just, just for closing, I guess we... You know, we like to make announcements, so we like to tell people, here's what's coming up for the tribe, here's the big things that we're doing that, that all of the public are invited to. So on the 4th of July, uh, Middle Village has uh, um, their fireworks display. Again, this is an annual thing, probably several years running now. The, the fire department um, sponsors that. They came to the legislature and asked for permission to use the, the land up there on the 4th to do the fireworks display. So that'll occur again here this year. Um, it's growing. It's a pretty big deal, and it's a really good show. So that's one. Um, the other ones are powwow. So our August powwow, August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th coming up, 2019. Um, it's in the works. The posters are out. I believe it's on the tribal website. Um, you can see the poster there, and... The events planned, and again, one of our bigger events of the year for the reservation draws a lot of visitors, 
and the public's welcome. So let's have a good time. Waiwana for listening to the MITW podcast. The MITW podcast will be uploaded monthly to keep you up to date with information from the Menominee Tribe and Tribal Departments. You can subscribe to the MITW podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube. You can also listen to the podcast on the menominee-nsn.gov website. If you have questions or comments, you can email podcast at mitw.org. You can also follow us on Facebook by liking the MITW Podcast Facebook page.